Hello and welcome to The Rebind, a podcast about putting all the pages of the Bible back together. On today's episode, we'll pick up our look at the links and teasers in Ezekiel 14 and 15, but switch gears to talk about the connections that are made all throughout the book and what that might mean for the way we think and read and live. Hope you guys have been enjoying the new pace here at The Rebind with our every other week releases and bonus content. If you like what you hear today, don't forget to show your support by giving us a rating and review on iTunes, liking us on social media, or just spreading the word. Don't forget that you can go to patreon.com slash the rebind, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the rebind, one word, to find more ways to support the show and get a hold of that bonus content. And as always, I want to thank Andrew Horning from Andrew Horning Sound for handling the Rebind's audio and music. By the way, if you're wondering what's going to happen to the first of the month interviews with this new bi-weekly pace, uh, we aren't going to have them every month. To do that would mean pretty much half of the podcast would be interviews, and you'd only be getting the normal content once or twice a month. So we're just going to alternate which months we have an interview at the start of the month. Um, That way we keep the same ratio of interviews to normal episodes um, while still keeping up with this new pace of every other week. So this next episode in September, we won't have an interview because we had one in August, but then you can have one in October, not November, December, not January. You get the point. Now, if you remember from the last episode, this is really part two to what we started a couple of weeks ago. We were looking at the end of Ezekiel 14 and chapter 15, talking about the links and teasers that Ezekiel drops for us. What we get here is a pair of prophecies that once again highlight the inevitability of the judgment that's coming to Jerusalem for their injustices. So the first prophecy at the end of chapter 14 talks about individualized justice, for lack of a better word. You know, even if Daniel's your daddy, if you did the crime, you pay the time. No national nepotism, no saints by association. If a nation is paving the way for doomsday, then that's what's coming. And the second of the back-to-back prophecies goes more parable style and talks about the same point from a slightly different angle. Instead of the loophole of saying, I'm with him, chapter 15 focuses on the natural consequence of nature and fate or direction and endpoint, however you want to put it. Uh, Do you make a coat rack out of vine wood? No, because it's not good for that. Its inherent properties, its qualities, means it's only good for roasting s'mores. It's not like anyone splicing the DNA of a vine so that they can use it for their diabolical bonfire plans that they already had in mind. It's that it's already become what it is, which already determines what it's for. Okay, now both of these paired prophecies... Uh, we saw they move from principle to particular case. And that strategy, that method, we learned a lot from that. As easy as it is to throw up our defenses, especially when we're talking about God's judgment, and say, look, I don't deserve this, they don't deserve this. Those, well, hypothetically speaking, strategies that the prophets use really help to cut to our hearts and see, oh, yeah, okay, 
All right, I can see what you're saying. But anyway, what's all that got to do with the links and teasers? Well, we talked about how the story of Sodom and Gomorrah can actually be seen looming in the background of these particular prophecies. After all, the end of chapter 14 talks about the hypothetical situation of a nation that was unspeakably corrupt, who people wanted to be spared because of some of the righteous people living in it, in a city that was burned down with fire like the vine would in chapter 15. And we already got reference to Noah and Job and Daniel, so we have an explicit indication that Ezekiel wants us to be making connections to other books of the Bible. And we talked about how Deuteronomy and Jeremiah are great companion books to be reading while you're reflecting on the book of Ezekiel because those get drawn out the most. Well, really the whole law, but Deuteronomy is a great summary and place to start. And we shouldn't be all that surprised that these connections happen in a book of the Bible because, well, we see that all over the Bible, right? Pretty much every book will foreshadow in some verses and pick up on earlier parts and later ones. They'll, they'll develop themes all throughout a story. They'll revisit a scene in a deja vu kind of a way and so forth. But there's something about the way that Ezekiel does this within its 48 chapters that stands out and makes it a pretty big deal when it comes to studying and understanding the peculiar prophet. And that's what we're set to talk about today. When it comes to links and teasers, how do those connections play out within the book itself, and why does it matter? Now, instead of trying to reinvent the wheel and come up with a ton of independent research to make this original, I'm just going to come right out of the gate and say I'm indebted to Daniel Block's observations about this. And you can find his comments on this aspect of Ezekiel in his New International Commentary in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 1-24 to Commentary, pages 23-26. to We're going to expand on what he says there by fleshing out more of the practical implications of this so as not to entirely rip him off or bore you with something that you could just read about in a few pages. So Block notices a lot of examples of what he calls resumptive exposition in Ezekiel, or intercompositional exegesis, which is basically noticing the way that Ezekiel reuses themes and ideas and vocab in later parts of the book. So far, not very exciting, right? I mean, we just talked about how all the Bible kind of does this already. But Block highlights two ways that Ezekiel does this and gives an astonishing amount of examples. The first way is what I'm going to dub links because, you know, it's a little easier to remember than resumptive exposition. This isn't the hyperlink kind of link that we talked about last week, pointing to other parts of the Bible, but it's more like uh, links in a chain. You know, I guess there would be a couple of ways of looking at that metaphor. We could say that that each theme or idea has its own chain. And as we move throughout the book of Ezekiel, this chapter might add a link to the temple chain. And then the next prophecy might develop the symbol of the sword and add to that chain and so forth. So you've got all these different links that are added to different ideas. But we could also look at it. Um, from the aspect of the developing argument in Ezekiel being one long chain with different colors. Maybe we've got a yellow chain towards the beginning, and then all of a sudden, 20 chapters later, we get another yellow chain. Very interesting. You know, Instead of getting a chain split evenly into four separate colors, it looks more like a rainbow of interchanging, cross-referencing ideas. 
So anyway, I'm delving too far into my made-up metaphor without actually explaining what Block was talking about. That's a bad move on my part. So basically, Block is saying we see plenty of places in Ezekiel where the focus of one passage or prophecy becomes the same focus of another passage or prophecy down the line. He says the most obvious examples are um, the vision of God's glory and mobile throne chariot in chapter 1, then getting expanded on in the vision of God's glory leaving the temple with the mobile throne chariot in chapters 8 to 11. And that's something that we've already touched on in this podcast. He also mentions the um, charge that God gives to Ezekiel in chapter 3 to be a watchman getting recycled in chapter 33, where it talks about the exact same thing in a different context. There's the popular sayings or, you know, the idea that Jerusalem is a pot portrayed first in chapter 11, but then picked up in chapter 24. And then, of course, chapter 16 and 23 both give this extensive, provocative analogy of Israel's behavior and betrayal being like a backstabbing harlot. And to really bring it home, remember the end of chapter 14 that we were just talking about, there's a focus on individualized responsibility, right? Well, that gets picked up in chapter 18. And then it gets talked about in almost exactly the same way as chapter 18 in chapter 33. So we could give plenty more examples, but I think it's enough to show that we have tons of cases, not just isolated verses here, but entire chunks of chapters and prophecies being reused, re-emphasized, expanded, placed in new settings, and on and on. And we're calling those examples links, like like links in a chain. Okay, so to the skeptical Bible reader or bulldozing Bible reader, this just seems like a literary mistake. When we plow through and, and read those linked passages, it just seems repetitive, right? It seems like Ezekiel ran out of ideas, so he's recycling his old prophecies, hoping no one will notice. But he is hoping people will notice. This is intentional. In fact, as an academic, Bloch has to spend so much of his time talking about this feature of Ezekiel, defending the book's intentional brilliance against the critical scholars who say that all of those links are just sloppy copy-pastes from later scribes. And that's why this episode is a good chance to not only point out this feature of the book, but actually flesh out some of its personal takeaways and implications in ways that we can't do in those academic books. But we're not quite ready for that. There's still some more to talk about here. There's one more variation on the inner connections that Ezekiel makes. Instead of um, linking two passages or prophecies wholesale, Block points out how Ezekiel will often briefly introduce an idea, immediately drop it, and then later pick it up with a fuller treatment of the subject. Now, I'm going to dub this part the teasers, okay? So listen to the examples that Block gives of these kinds of teasers. First, he points out what we might call um, hints of hope uh, that are scattered throughout the first half of the book that focuses on God's judgment. Places like chapter 6, 8 through 10, 11, 17 to 20, 16, 60 to 63, 20, 39 to 44. They're just a couple of verses scattered here or there that anticipate the huge section of hope 
to come at the end of the book. So these are verses that will kind of interrupt a chapter of prophecy that's predominantly about judgment with a message of how God will restore or redeem later on. But there's more. If we think about the vision of God's mobile throne chariot in chapter 1 getting picked up in 8 to 11, um, we could point out a teaser within that link. And we could point out the coals of fire that get randomly hinted at in verse 13 in chapter 1, which doesn't make sense in the beginning. Like, why is it talking about that? But later in chapter 10, it gets a whole lot more meaning and focus in verses 6 to 8. So the teaser's dropped, and the full meaning is picked up later. Here's another one. In the earlier part of chapter 14, we saw a quick call in verse 6 to turn and repent. But it's later in chapter 18 that that becomes a key word. It's, it's a focused idea. It gets elaborated on. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? That's verse 23 of 18. And here's one to bring it home with the prophecies that we've been looking at the last couple of episodes. We got hints about the burning of Jerusalem as part of God's pre-warned judgments in chapter 5, a verse here or there. But it's here in chapter 15 that's like the main focus with the vine wood getting burned, right? Now, hopefully hearing about all that has been at least slightly interesting to you and not a total snooze fest. But now is the time for the real question of the episode. What do we make of all that? What are the personal takeaways that we can draw more than just the academic debates about scribes and all that? So obviously, these connections add a whole other layer to the prophecies and themes and structure of the whole book of Ezekiel. While most Old Testament books have a clear sandwich kind of patterns for their material, and while Ezekiel's prophecies are unusually well-marked and defined by dates, the prophecies in Ezekiel don't really line up as neatly as we'd like them to. One teaser gets picked up two chapters later, another one 22 chapters later. One image or theme gets three links in the chain, another only two. Remember, the whole section of prophecies from chapters 12 to 24 often gets lumped together as the other prophecies. Because it's hard for people to tell what the common pattern or focus might be. So to overcomplicate the way that Ezekiel presents his material is not only going to lead to speculation, where we look for a hidden link and teaser instead of the obvious, plain purpose of a given prophecy, it, it's just going to be a head-scratcher. That's not what we want. That's not the, the takeaway we want to draw for this, making our study of the Bible less reachable and helpful. But these stitched together connections ranging all the way from the first chapter to the very last one shows us just how much Ezekiel resists being piecemealed. You know, it could be that part of the reason Ezekiel feels so strange and misunderstood is because we've rarely, if ever, connected all of the pieces together. We just isolate one verse or one chapter or one prophecy and scratch our heads. You know, it could be that, that part of the reason Ezekiel is so neglected is because we breeze past it so fast that we see all the repetitions, but we don't really connect the dots. We don't reflect enough to notice the hints, the teasers, 
the links that glue all the different angles of warnings and promises together. And so we got a lopsided distortion of this shocking thing he said or that offensive metaphor he used, but we don't take to heart the fact that even in the most scathing judgments, we get teasers of the redemption and hope to come. We cringe at the punishments that seem disproportionately destructive, but we don't make the connections that the book itself is making for us between the judgments and the specific repulsive crimes that get called out in later chapters. Now, could it be that the only prophecy of hope we latch onto is the Valley of Dry Bones because we miss all the connections leading up to all the other ones that give them their weight and meaning and rich sense of hope? So there's a lot, even just from chapters 14 and 15 that we've been covering that we could reflect on when it comes to Ezekiel's links and teasers. We've already pointed out some of that along the way in this discussion. But what else might those links and teasers teach us about the way we read the Bible, the way we connect the dots of different parts of Scripture, our pace and process for spiritual growth? The Bible is constantly stitching together its ideas. It's throwing the thread forward, picking it up, linking it together with a different part, stitching more throwing the thread somewhere else. And I think that should caution our Western fixation with accomplishment and linear progress. I'm not saying you should ditch the chapter-by-chapter walkthrough uh, in the pages of a book of Scripture. I mean, this isn't about study method as much as it's about study pace and reflection. Don't be too quick to try to check off the box of which Bible studies you've finished so that you can get to the next one. And on the other end of the spectrum, don't think that careful meditation just means chanting the same verse over and over and over. Meditation involves connecting the dots in more ways than we would otherwise have done because we're not too quick to leave it behind and jump to the next one. So let me just give an example of this. I think this is part of the brilliance of the book of Proverbs, actually. We tend to think of Proverbs like a collection of fortune cookies. But really, if you think about it, it's more like a web of interconnecting ideas. You have these key themes, these um, important areas of life, like family, money, faith and righteousness, uh, sexuality, government, work, and so forth. And those Two-line proverbs are constantly connecting different ideas together in different ways. We start out in chapter 10 hearing, A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is sorrow to his mother. So we see the idea of, of wisdom and the moral quality of someone's life affecting family dynamics. But then we see in verse 4, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. So, hard work correlates and connects with poverty and riches, generally speaking. But then in verse 5, we see the family dynamics connected with that financial dynamic, while also being connected to that work ethic. You see the web? He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. 
Then we see the Lord's blessing compared to riches and the fear of the Lord having an effect on quality of life. And on and on, the web keeps connecting, weaving together this tapestry of what a life of wisdom really looks like. And the thing is, we often treat the whole Bible like we treat the book of Proverbs. We see it as a collection of fortune cookies. We miss the web of connections that gets us to look back and think ahead and do more than just memorize verbatim what one part says. Ezekiel especially forces us to consider how one part of the plot line and argument is connected to another part. The way it starts something and only finishes it 30 chapters later, or the way it keeps coming back to the same idea but builds on it each time, or, or splits up its prophecies into two halves. It, it's not that it's disorganized. In fact, it's insane how sophisticated and deep all that is. It, it, it's not meant to confuse us, though, either. The prophecies in Ezekiel are always throwing up loose threads, drawing our attention to them so that we don't just sit back like passive observers at a TED Talk. So we actually engage with the message. We pick up those threads. We find the places they connect to. And as we're doing that kind of meditation, that reading, that rereading, working through carefully on its own terms, we're also working backwards and zigzag and crisscross and sideways with themes and ideas And the result is so much more personally enriching and long-lasting because we're involved. We're forced to do that synthesizing. We're invited to take the next step and piece together how all the parts fit into the whole and what that means for us today. So what's the upshot of that different way of thinking? It doesn't mean we throw out our historical, grammatical, chapter-by-chapter approach to studying the Bible that we've been doing here in the podcast. doesn't mean we have to be God-level artistic and sophisticated to really understand what the Bible is trying to say. Well, once again, no, I don't think that any of that is even implied in the links and teasers that Ezekiel drops for us. We only come to see those connections by (laughs) working through the plot line carefully like we've been doing. But let me just skip to the practical punchline here. You should not finish with the book of Ezekiel when this podcast finally gets to chapter 48. You will never actually reach the point where you say, okay, I know what chapter blank is talking about. I'm done. Next lesson. You can always keep asking the question all throughout the Bible, really, but especially in Ezekiel, where else do I see this pop up? What web of ideas is being spun? How might this idea relate to that one, and, and how is God drawing out that for us? Is there a, a hyperlink here that I'm supposed to click on to send me back to something I need to meditate more on? Is there a link in the chain that's getting added that I should notice how it's connecting? Is there a, a teaser that gets me to stay tuned instead of assuming this is the end of the conversation right here and now? My point is you'll never get bored if you can escape the accomplishment mentality and start rereading and rereading and piecing together the world of the Bible, the message of Ezekiel in your mind and your heart. A web that we've worked to weave together holds together much stronger than a fuzzy recollection, oh yeah, I think I read that book once. 
It's not actually as intimidating as it sounds, though. I think we do this instinctually with the things that we love and are really gripped by. I mean, the Star Wars fan that can break down the science and rituals of lightsabers for you didn't take a seminar by George Lucas to get the insider information. They just watched the movies like four times and picked up on the different scenes and details that talked about lightsabers. They wondered about the Easter eggs and references to some lesser-known comic or book or cartoon and then looked it up and, and put the pieces together, right? Just Just don't treat Ezekiel, don't treat the Bible like we unfortunately treat the book of Proverbs so often, like it's just a bag full of random fortune cookies. If Ezekiel is throwing up threads, grab them. Get interested. Where have we seen this before? Where might this pop up later? How does it all fit together? It's not a chore, guys. It's it's amazing. You never have to get bored reading through once and finishing. You never have to get bored meditating like a broken record with vain repetition. This is a very obvious way that the Bible invites us to make our home in its pages and keep exploring, even after we get the gist of what it's trying to communicate. Ezekiel is inviting us to be that kind of Star Wars nerd that rewatches episode one because something in episode four made a reference to it. So hopefully today you got an even better idea of chapters 14 and 15, what that section of Ezekiel is saying and contributing, but hopefully you also got some trail tips on how to be reading all along the way through this journey in the podcast. Don't just check boxes, connect dots. Don't just finish books of the Bible. Take hold of what it's presenting to you and keep tracing the dotted lines. Engage in the work of piecing the parts together so that God's word impacts your heart and minds in long-lasting and enriching ways. Don't meditate in a way that causes you to read less of Scripture. Do it in a way that gets you to see more of it, more of its relevance. All right, I think you get the idea. That helps us not only rethink our Bible reading habits, but also our core perspective on what spiritual growth should look like. It's not always what new thing did you learn today. We might not always see a new idea in a later chapter of Ezekiel. It might sound like a repeat, but we might see that idea from a new angle, understand it with greater depth. We might not be surprised to learn that our Messiah is just and righteous, but we might come to experience that and understand that about him at a slightly different angle in a new set of circumstances and in light of something that we hadn't thought to connect it with before. So don't meditate on your Christian faith in a way that shrinks it and causes you to read less of scripture. Do it in a way that gets you to see more of it, more of its relevance. And to start out practicing that posture and listening heart, connecting the dots of the links and teasers in scripture, we pray in the words of the old hymn, Wonderful Words of Life. Lord, sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see, wonderful words of life. Words of life and beauty, teach me faith and duty. Sweetly echo the gospel call. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. Amen. Catch you next time.